Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. much. I'll try not to say anything significant or interesting until you already have your food. <laughs> yes, I understand, but I'm not so good at multitasking. So I wanted to use our time together beforehand to tell you the story of how I had the opportunity to ordain the chief rabbi of Uganda and travel up the Nile. And I thought that was a story that has some interesting implications for Jewish life. Uh, and also, you're never going to hear it if you don't hear it from me. <laughs> so I was uh, in my humble office in Bel Air doing what I normally do, running a rabbinical school. And the phone rang. And the person on the other end of the phone said, we have this guy who is the rabbi of a tribe of Ugandans. And they consider themselves Jewish. And he would like to come to rabbinical school in the United States and be ordained. And so, um, so he wants to come visit your school, and he wants to be interviewed. I don't get such calls every day. I was very happy to arrange for him to meet. He flew into the campus. His name is Gershom Sizomo. Um, if you ever have the chance to hear him or hear the Abba Yudaya tribe's music, they're really, it's astonishing music, Jewish liturgy set to African rhythms. It's really beautiful. Um, so he shows up with his brother, who's the head of the family. And his brother is carrying an attache case. And you know, that for me raises the same question as Queen Elizabeth's purse. <laughs> you know, what, what would you have in such a purse? I don't know. Um, so they sit down to talk. And, 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 and apparently, this is his rabbinical school interview, like this guy who I've never met before. So I could only come up with two questions for him. I pointed to the woman sitting next to him, Cheryl Peretz, and I said, this person is a rabbi. What do you do with that? And he looked shocked, and he said, I'm shocked, but in a good way. OK, 50% successfully completed. Second question I said, what would you do if I tell you that the Torah says that something is absolutely forbidden? And the rabbis say, you must do it. And he looked puzzled for a minute, and then he said, I would follow our sages, but you would have to explain it to me. All right, you're in. <laughs> so he then says to me, looking out the window, because we have to make small talk, he said, you know, I've never been to Bel Air before, but it reminds me exactly of Uganda. <laughs> And I said, it's amazing how many people have driven through Bel Air and never even noticed the obvious. <laughs> 
So he comes to rabbinical school. He's an extraordinary mensch of a human being, really a prince. Every summer he went back to Uganda. He used his time in rabbinical school to fundraise on behalf of his community. He created a health clinic that serves Muslims and Christians and Jews in Uganda. Um, he built a computer center and brought technology to and the internet to the region. Um, he did incredible, incredible things. And then his last year in rabbinical school, uh, he approached me and he said, I would be very honored if you would come to Uganda and install me. And I thought this is an easy way to win points with my wife. So I said, thank you very much, but that's too long to be away from my family, and so no thank you. Having forgotten that I married an Israeli. So I came home to brag to my wife about how I had prioritized family over my job. Don't you think I should get credit for this? Yes. And she says, you're out of your mind. You're never going to go to Uganda if you don't go now. So you're not only going to go, but you're going to take our daughter with you. All right, so me and my, son, my daughter are now preparing for a trip to Uganda. How many of you have ever been to Uganda? One. So let me tell you the most interesting thing is there's a subspecies of sadists who love torturing people in pointless ways. They go into international medicine in which they get to afflict people who are traveling to third world countries by giving them shots so big that it goes in one shoulder so the medicine can be deposited in the other shoulder. I visited this doctor twice with my daughter and she kept giving me these shots. My arms would swell up like a football player. I would scream in pain if anyone so much as looked at me. Uh, after the third of those shots and swelling in my arms, she turned to my daughter and said, would you rather have shots or would you rather take pills? <laughs> I would have liked that information. We get on the plane to go. We, we, we have a direct flight. It's a direct flight from Los Angeles to London, a direct flight from London to Dubai, a direct flight from Dubai to Addis Ababa, and a direct flight from Addis Ababa to Entebbe. That's the airport in Uganda. That's how much I love direct flights. Um, as the door closes on the plane in Los Angeles to take us off to London, my daughter turns to me and says, Daddy, I have something I need to tell you. She says, I have lice. Now? You're telling me this now? On the, okay, we get to Heathrow, and it turns out Heathrow has everything, really everything. So we find a pharmaceutical store in Heathrow. They have the special shampoo that you use. We got the nitpicking comb. Cheryl Peretz, the rabbi I told you about, who's a woman, earned her place in the world to come. She took her into the bathroom and she washed her hair, and then we spent eight hours on the floor in Heathrow picking nits. Every photograph on the plane from London to Dubai shows my daughter with this round puddle seeping into the chair behind her head um, from the stuff. But I will tell you that when we got to Uganda, she was lice-free. <laughs> We're landing in Uganda, and there are two runways at the airport in Entebbe, one of which has a rusting Air France plane on the runway. And I say to the stewardess, excuse me, what's that? 
And she said, well, that's the plane that the Israelis liberated, sitting in the middle of 50% of their usable runways all these years later. All right, we get to Uganda. We drive from Kampala, which is the capital city, out to where the tribe is, which is outside of Mbale. Mbale is the second largest city in Uganda. And, um, and I want to say a word about the tribe. Gershom's great-great-grandfather was an administrator who helped the British come up with an administrative plan for running the 60 or so different tribes of Uganda. And being that they were British, after they implemented his plan, they fired him. So he went back to the tribal base in Mbale, and there was a Christian minister who was trying to convert the tribe to Christianity, and the tribe had a really interesting reaction. The tribe's reaction was the first part of it makes perfect sense. You know the old book, the one that has shepherds and multiple wives and tribal warfare? Like that book was just everyday reality. But the stuff that was in the new book, well, that was just stuff you wouldn't believe. So they literally took the Bible, ripped it in two, handed the minister the New Testament back and told him to get out of town. And then they decided that they were Jews. And they did that without being aware that there were people out in the world who thought of themselves as Jewish. Comes Idi Amin, and Idi Amin was, among other things, a vicious anti-Semite. He tried to wipe out the tribe. And when they survived him, they realized that they needed to reach out to the larger Jewish world because nobody would know that there were Ugandans who for 70 years had considered themselves Jewish and with nothing but a Lugandan translation of the Old Testament had been trying to be Jews as best they could. So they reached out to the chief rabbinate of Israel. They said they were interested in making a formal connection to the Jewish people. And the chief rabbinate said, drop dead, more or less. So then they reached out to a bunch of conservative rabbis in the United States and Israel. They flew a delegation over. They taught a bunch of them on and off for about a year. And then they did a conversion of about six or 700 of them. And that's when Gershom decided, if my people are really Jews, I need to be really a rabbi. OK, so, so I bring a delegation of five conservative rabbis to Uganda. And the purpose is to do his installation. It's also to finish up the conversion job. He tells me that there'll be about 100 people wanting to convert. When we get there, there are over 300. People have traveled from Ghana, from Kenya, from South Africa, Israelis who finished their term in the army and were trekking through Africa heard there's going to be some Jew thing going on. So they just showed up literally on the front lawn the, that morning. Um, so we spent three days converting people. We converted over 300 people. I'll tell you two of the most interesting. There was a 12-year-old Muslim boy who wanted to be Jewish. When he was 10, he told his parents he wanted to be Jewish. And because it's Uganda, the reaction was, well, so long as you're a monotheist, that's fine. So this kid walked for two hours from his Muslim village every Friday afternoon 
to the Jewish village to spend Shabbat, and then in the dark Saturday night, walk two hours back to get home. His parents came for his Beit Din. Right? Astonishing. Right? I had made it very clear when Gershom invited me to be the head of this Beit Din that I'd be happy to do that, but under no circumstances was I participating in the Brit Milah or Hatafat Dam Brit. Does anybody need help with what Hatafat Dam Brit is? If the foreskin is still attached, then you need to do a full circumcision. If that's already been done, then you still need to take a drop of ceremonial blood from a very sensitive spot that no man wants you doing that from. That means that you never have to question the sincerity of the male converts. Right? So one of the local rabbis, Richard Cameras, agreed to study with a moel and learn how to do Hatafat Dam Brit so that he could do that. He spent two days in the men's room doing Hatafat Dam Brit. His comment at the end of the two days was that he knows now definitively that he's not gay. <laughs> and that he can recognize anyone at the urinal. <laughs> so, so we convert 300 people. It's really astonishing. And then the next day, we have the installation. 1,200 people show up from all over Uganda. They built a stadium, a temporary stadium, for the event. They had local chieftains. They had members of parliament. They had members of the government. They had archbishops, imams, priests, ministers. People showed up from every walk of life. This was on the front page of the Ugandan national newspaper the next day. Um, and they decided, and I'd appreciate if we just keep this in this room, that I was the chief rabbi of the United States. <laughs> So in the middle of this big temporary amphitheater, they set up a throne. And my 15-year-old daughter was with me when they said, come, we'll take you to your seats. And they start walking us out. And as soon as she realizes where they're expecting us to sit, she says, you're on your own. And I didn't see her for the rest of the ceremony. One of the chieftains who had a speech to give. Every speech was given either in Lugandan and then translated into English simultaneously or delivered in English and then translated into Lugandan. One of the chieftains started his speech by saying, I am the chief here. You are the chief rabbi. And so I want to give you a chief's name. And so he gave me a Swahili name. I may well be the only rabbi you'll ever meet who has a Swahili name, unless you bring Gershom Sizomo here, which you really should. Um, so my name is Walusansa Salongo. Yes, he's been to, uh, yes, good. Um, my name is Walusansa Salongo. Walusansa means reeds, like the stuff that grows by the banks of the Nile. And Salongo means father of twins. From that ceremony on, nobody in Uganda called me anything other than Rabbi Walusansa. Right? And that's still my official name for people in Mabali. Um, it was a magnificent thing. We had, we had uh, festivities. We, or, we installed him. His mother was still alive. She was able to see her rabbi son, now the chief rabbi of Uganda, 
Um, again, he was recognized by members of the government, was extraordinary. And then the Ziegler School offered to sponsor the feast for everyone in attendance. That is to say for 1,200 guests. Um, and we spent a whopping $500 for all the food. It was amazing. Um, if you go to Uganda, pack your own food. <laughs> Unless you're interested in a rapid weight loss program, in which case, once you get there, just lick a fruit or something. And, and this is no metaphor here. The pounds will fly off. <laughs> so the last piece I want to tell you about, um, we had a uh, trip up the Nile. You know that the Nile River starts in Uganda. The friendly part of the Nile is in Uganda. So we got on a boat, and we went up the Nile River. And the amazing thing is, never having been to Africa before, you have a sense in your mind of what the Nile looks like. It looks exactly like that. Like, really, you should just be aware of how extraordinary it is that we live in a time in which we can have mental images of places we've never been to. Right? It looks just like that. We sailed up the Nile River. And there are some amazing things about the Nile that I want to share with you. One, there are these things called Nile crocodiles that grow to be 14 or 15 feet long. They're just dinosaurs is what they are. They're just big dinosaurs. They are not the most ferocious animal in the Nile. The toughest animal in the Nile is the hippopotamus. Right? If a 15-foot crocodile wants to get into a fight with a hippo, the hippo will just, with one bite, snap the crocodile in two. They're incredibly powerful. So we were on a boat, all 12 of us, and we approached a herd of hippos, animals that only a mother could love. <laughs> and the bull hippo took offense and turned to us. And he did what hippos do when they're mad, which is he blew bubbles and he wiggled his ears. Now, I've been to Disneyland, and so <laughs> I know what you're supposed to do when a hippo does that. You're supposed to shoot a cap gun in the air, and then they go back underwater. But not in Africa, they don't. In Africa, if a bull hippo shows any hostility in your direction, you immediately ram the boat into full speed reverse, because that hippo would overturn and shred our boat. OK, so we keep going down the Nile. We see all kinds of amazing animals. We see Pumbaa. We see Timon. Um, <laughs> if you need to find out what those are, ask someone who laughed at that joke. Um, right? We saw giraffe and elephant. Um, we got in a bus, and we drove around. And the two things I want to share with you is there we met, we came up across a male lion. It was about 3.30 in the afternoon. He was sitting in the shade of a tree. Here's the thing you need to know about male lions. First thing you need to know is they have a hairdo, you know, that kind of air-blown look with different browns and yellows and oranges. In Beverly Hills, that costs about 200 bucks, <laughs> right? And he was just sporting it like nothing. Um, and the other thing is, that male lions don't hunt. That's women's work. And the gazelles know that. So this lion is sitting there looking absolutely stunning. 
and the gazelles are literally walking over him because they know that it's beneath his dignity to notice them. So they're just ignoring him. Okay, we get to a herd of water buffalo. Have any of you ever seen water buffalo up close? It's like a Jeep with horns, <laughs> right? Covered with mud and stinking of, you know, you can imagine. Um, so we pull our bus up to this herd of buffaloes, and the bull, who is the head of the herd, takes offense. I don't know what it is with all these touchy male vegetarians in Africa, um, but he stomps the ground and he shakes his horns, and the toughest animal on land in Africa is a water buffalo. If a full-grown lion attacks an adult water buffalo, they will hook it with their horn and throw it 35 feet in the air. Right? So when a buffalo stamps like that, you pull it into full reverse immediately. Last story from the safari, and then I want to close with two important points. When we got back to the camp, our bus had been unfortunately not closed. So all the lunch boxes had been ransacked by a group of baboons. And the male baboon, who was the head of the tribe, not a vegetarian and therefore not cranky, um, he was sitting on a rock holding a banana and an apple, his legs spread across, fully erect. And my 15-year-old daughter said something that has now scarred into my brain I'll never forget. She turned to me and she said, gosh, Daddy, I've never enjoyed fruit that much. <laughs> I took Sheer on this trip because I wanted her to see how rich we are in physical things. Compared to the Africans, you live like royalty, like royalty. They live in corrugated metal, brick-circled buildings with no floors. The death rate is so high that it's customary. You just take in whatever orphans you need to. Gershom's brother was raising 13 kids. Right? And that's just what you do. Right? There's often not enough food for more than a meal a day. They're dependent on, they have this wonderful uh, coffee cooperative. They do, they have a Christian Muslim Jewish coffee cooperative that exports delicious coffee, really magnificent coffee. Um, but the poverty is unbelievable, as is the generosity. I've never been to a more sharing community than this one. And so I wanted Shira to see a, you know, she has a dad who works for a nonprofit. And she lives right near Beverly Hills, so she thinks we're paupers, right? And I wanted her to see that compared to most people around the world, we are kings and queens who forget to notice and forget to be grateful for the wealth that we take for granted. Second thing I wanted her to notice, I wanted her to notice that even in the middle of far off Africa, if you know your Judaism, 
if your Judaism means something to you, there is nowhere in the world that you don't have brothers and sisters. And it's not because of cuisine. They would think that the lox was slimy Scandinavian food, right? They don't like Woody Allen's sense of humor, right? It's not the Borscht Belt stuff that feels Jewish to them. Jewish for them is Torah, it's Shabbat, it's the festivals. And I wanted my daughter to see that if you live a life elevated by the rhythms of Torah, then no matter where in the world you go, there are Jews who will see you as their brothers and sisters, and their life will be recognizably similar to your own. Right? And that was indeed the case. Right? Shira became instant friends with these other teenage girls with whom on the surface she had nothing in common. But she knew the Sidur, and they knew the Sidur. Their melodies were different, but the prayers were the same. And she had Shabbat, and they had Shabbat. And I wanted her to know that, and I want you to know that. I want you to know that there is not a Jewish community in the world that has survived once it severs its connection to Torah. There is no substitute. Do you remember the Bundists? 100 years ago, there was a Jewish socialist movement that was the future of the Jewish world, right? Gone, right? Gone. But what lasts is Torah. And I'm not here arguing for one way of observing Torah or another way of observing Torah. This is not a pitch for a particular kind of Jewish living. This is for whatever way you're Jewish, have the Torah be at the center. Have the holidays be at the center. Have the Sabbath be sanctified. Because that is what has kept us a people, and that is what makes us a people around the world. Several years ago, I took a trip to France. I'm going to stop in a minute. Several years ago, I took a trip to France. I went into the Notre Dame Cathedral. It's not a shabby place, worth seeing at some point. right? And I was shocked to see that the service was in French, which means if you're a Catholic from Buenos Aires or Los Angeles and you find yourself in a cathedral in France, you can't join in the prayers. But if you went to Hebrew school and you're able to figure out your way through a Sidur in Phoenix, then you can go to the synagogue in London or Morocco or Johannesburg or Mabale, Uganda, and that service is your service. We are one people to the extent that we take each other into account. We include each other in our lives and we hold fast to the language and the traditions and the literatures that have always made us a people. I traveled to Uganda so that I could share that with you because it's something you need to know. Thank you. But, uh, and afterwards, I don't know what there is now. The Abba Yudaya have about four or five different synagogues, and they've unfortunately adopted one of the plagues of American Jewish life. So some donors here introduced denominational rivalry. So most of the Abba Yudaya synagogues look more or less conservative. Some American funders created a kind of right-wing version of orthodoxy, because that's what Uganda needs. Um, so there now are 
two synagogues that don't consider the other synagogues synagogues. <laughs> that makes them authentic. Uh, and, then, yes. and then there's a congregation in Kampala that's mostly made up of Israelis uh, who won't let the Abu Yudaya worship with them. I'm not surprised when you described the chief rabbi of Israel's comment uh, initially uh, to our new rabbi. Um, but uh, I would imagine that the attitude in Israel as to the Jewishness of these people hasn't changed very much. And I wonder how that jives with these very, very right-wing congregations uh, who may think they're more Jewish than uh, I remember his first name, Gershon. I yes. remember his last name. Um, are they recognized as Jewish by the Israelis? So you know, the way Jewish identity is determined by Israel is split. There's who the government considers Jewish and who the rabbinate considers Jewish, and they're not always the same. Right now, we are having, we, the conservative movement, are having a fight with the Israeli government because they are, at least on paper, they've already committed to recognizing anyone from my Beit Din and subsequent. So the fight is to get them to follow that policy that they've already agreed to, and then to extend it backwards. Um, so we're working on that. That's totally separate from who the rabbinate will consider as Jewish. And that one, I don't frankly see how we're going to fight our way out of that in the short run. Um, but right now, Interestingly, the Abu Yudaya don't want to make Aliyah. What they want to do is be able to go to Israel to study. All right, so they want to st every year we have a couple who want to go to the conservative yeshiva and study in Jerusalem, but their intention is to then go back to Africa to be able to teach Judaism the way the world understands Judaism. Their intention is not to move to Israel for good, which is, I think, the concern of some Israelis. So we are... Here, I just I don't want to give you the wrong impression. There are many Israelis who are inspired by the work of Gershom Sizomo and what his community is doing. And this is a fight that Israel as a democracy is going to have to address to what extent do its citizens get to determine their policies and to what extent does a bunch of clerics get to determine the policies. Uh, they have thrown a lot of challenges their way. So the technical answer is they should be able to. We have had to sue on behalf of one individual who wants to, and the ministry is resisting it. But that gets into Israeli politics, and I really, that I don't want to do tonight. Great. Thank you. Yes, coming around, Stu. I don't okay. Those who don't know, So Rabbi Sizomo, I'll, I'll share a point of pride. Um, rabbi Sizomo is not only the chief rabbi of Uganda, but he is also was elected to the Ugandan parliament. Uh, and here I will tell you the uh, laws of unanticipated outcomes. Um, the primary creator of the Ziegler School is a wonderful woman now deceased named Ruth Ziegler, who was just a, a visionary, remarkable, extraordinary woman. Um, and 
uh, when, when Gershom was ordained with us, he went back and he started the work organizing the community doing, and running for office. And on his platform was gay rights, which you know Uganda is one of the most hostile uh, countries for. And he lost in no small measure because of that. When he ran a second time, that was still part of his platform. And when the local paper asked him why, he said, it's one of the things I learned in Los Angeles. And this time he won. So we now have a legislator in the parliament of Uganda who's fighting for gay rights uh, by virtue of his time in California. Great. OK, yes, Felix, Dr. Solomon. Lugandan. So there are two languages. The, the primary national language is Lugandan. Swahili is the mother tongue of that whole part of the world. Um, so, you know, missionaries translate the Bible into local dialects. That's one of the things they do so that there's a book to put in the hotel room. <laughs> and, um, and so they had translated into the local Ugandan dialect. Um, but it, and they still have, they have Lugandan copies of the Bible. You can, the next time you're in Uganda, <laughs> check it out. I'm going to take the last question, if I may, on the topic of conversion. Do you think that Jewish wisdom is distinct and significant enough that we should engage in soft proselytizing today? Um, I know proselytizing is a bad word, but the extent that should we actively seek to recruit and engage people to engage, to go through the conversion process? You understand that I'm, I'm a fairly idiosyncratic rabbi, so I have very strong views that are held by very few people. Um, and nonetheless, I persist. So um, I don't think we should be proselytizing. But I do believe that Judaism is one of the world's wisdom traditions, and that our obligation to our fellow human beings is to share our wisdom as part of a bigger conversation than just us. So what I think it's comparable to is how I recruit for rabbinical school. I very rarely recruit for rabbinical school, but I'm always looking. And whenever I teach, I'm always looking around the room for who's got that sparkle in their eye and who's thinking, God, I really love this arts and teachings. And then I try to help show them that there's a way they can cultivate that. So I have a public figure Facebook page with about 60,000 likes. And about half of those people are not Jewish. About 10,000 are Arab Muslims. Um, and I put Jewish wisdom that helps you be a better human being. So it's not stuff about Jewish ritual per se, although we do talk about the holidays. But it's about wisdom from the Torah and the Talmud that helps you be a human being. And thank God we live in a time in which there are hundreds of thousands of people who are willing to take wisdom from a rabbi. In that sense, that is going to lead to some people wanting to move from column A to column B. And I think we should welcome them and lessen the impediments for that. But I'm also, what I'm really interested in is whether you want to change your label or not, I'm interested in making Jewish wisdom accessible to everybody. Because I think it has something important to do to make the world a better place. Let's hear it for Rabbi Arsene.
Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.